Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 247 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have our regular contributor, writer, community activist, baker, candlestick maker, Kitty Bell Burbank, with her segment, Kitty Bell Do Tell. And the Kitty and I talk about a parable, a Buddhist parable, dealing with having problems. We talk about a play she just finished writing about a girl who feels stuck with no opportunities, so she builds a door. We talk about farmers. We talk about how no one deserves anything. Injustice and sadness. Compassion for other people, we discuss. We discuss how Trump is our angriest president. Zen sickness is on tap, as well as a little bit about Milton Berle and fairy doors in trees, among other things. A great conversation this week with Kitty Bell Burbank. We also have an essay by yours truly titled True Love. We have a reading by Uncle Cesare of an excerpt from a Seymour Crim essay titled For My Brothers and Sisters in the Failure of Business. We have a poem titled Wonder, too. All of this, as is always the case, is ensconced within several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 247 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Look a little on the sunny side. Even when they say you're on the slide. And for a while, they'll say your records never make it. But in a while, they're gonna be showering you with praises They'll give you mediocre reviews And put you in the underground for a while But look a little on the funny, sunny side of life Look a little on the sunny side You sing on the blues and then they ask for a happy tune And when you start to smile they say Give me that rhythm and blues And when you give them the rhythm and blues They'll simply smile and say
single time But look a little on the sunny side They're gonna put you down for a while You got to learn to grit your teeth and smile Look a little on the funny sunny side of life Look a little on the sunny side True love, erstwhile hemlock, I scream from the treetops As if somehow that made sense And someone would hear as much as one would hope, not even those near here. But a rally cry contra to the queers living on this continent so that they might be shunned from our civil society quickly brings my focus clear with sobriety when I realize the contempt and deep inward discontent some of our more troubled and down-to-the-soul, hate-driven brothers and sisters extol. So you think some god of love, sitting on a throne up above, denounces other people who innately are drawn to relationships not of your kind? For truly, this judgment inspired by narrow and shallow mind, rationale and parameters, sublime. To be intimate, this makes them illegitimate in some kingdom, here and later there, to belong. Holy Moses, talk about trampling over the roses and slapping good fortune across the face you dangerous, misguided urchins of our human race. How about some true love? And our species' concocted time clock continues to move click, tick, tock as you wonder who's into whose backside, chest size, thigh drive, Moonbeam romanticized, hot, wet space, in a smiling face, or hard Johnson pressed passionate and warm. How empty, sad, afraid, alone, and forlorn.
Kitty Bell Burbank. Yes. I can hear myself again echoing. It's, I'm turning it down. <laughs> it freaks me out. Welcome again to the program. Troubadours and Rock on Tours, regular contributor. Kitty Bell is a writer, a community activist, a baker, and a candlestick maker. <laughs> I have made candles. I know. And you have baked. Not recently, but... I make all kinds of stuff, yeah. yeah. Getting, and you know, not lately, but I'm going to. Well, uh, you so. know, the holidays are coming up, so you have to make your wares, right, to sell yes. the festivals and such. Yes, I was so happy today. It's the first, like, night in weeks, like 10, 12 weeks, that I didn't have an assignment due at midnight, by midnight. Oh, yeah, going for your master's. And I almost cried. <laughs> <laughs> like my eyes teared up <laughs> i was like i can go to sleep like at 10 o'clock if i want to Woohoo! yeah it was great yeah it's a great moment that is cool you know a little freedom mm-hmm. uh, you just got back yes. from work how was work today all right uh yeah not too bad busy, busy. trying to help the people you know yeah yeah, I, I know uh, you're 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 a very uh, busy person doing a lot of different things, and uh, we're going to talk about some 
some of those things, I suppose. That we're going to start. You have a couple of tales to tell. Uh, yes. Well, I was going to say, leading into it, everybody, everybody just has so many problems. And I heard this great uh, story on a Dharma talk. A farmer who's just besieged with misery. Maybe he was from Scranton. Um, he's got so many problems and, you know, finally his friends and they're like, you know, you should go see the Buddha. Maybe he could help you. So the guy goes on the trek or, or whatever to find the Buddha and he says, you know, sit down, tell me what's on your mind. And the, the guy just, the farmer just starts rattling them off all the problems that he has that the weather's not cooperating and his wife is nagging him and his back hurts and he goes on and on and. And the Buddha says, wow, that's, you know, an impressive list of problems. I'm, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do to help you. And the farmer is just like, you know, his jaw drops. What, what do you mean you can't help me? All these people told me to come see you. Now you're telling me you can't help me. And the Buddha says, everybody has problems. We all have 83 problems. Um, and you could try to get rid of one of those problems and work really hard on it. And maybe you do get rid of one of those problems, but then another problem just, you know, rises up in its place. I think this is just the way the world is. So, so the, the man is just, you know, dumbfounded. He doesn't know what to do in the, in the Buddha says, but, uh, there is another problem that I can help you with. And that's the 84th problem. And that problem is that you don't want to have any problems. Mm. and you know if you you know going on if you do this practice you know maybe you can solve that problem um and i just like i like that story <laughs> yeah, yeah i do too because i have to remember like you know is my is my real problem that i don't want to have any problems because we all have them and you know it's reality it's it's okay, yeah. It's okay to be struggling, I guess. Well, isn't that one of the basic, uh, I guess, um, under the the underpinnings of Buddhism is that life is a struggle. There's pain, and and uh, and you you embrace that. I mean, to put it simply, right, right. We don't have to be. Uh, masochists but you know stop stop struggling <laughs> just just let things be as they are and do your best what about the confusion and the pain that come with the problems are they well, because you're trying to sh to get rid of the problems that you know cuz yeah right cuz you want things to be different than the way that they are you know, like you think that things could or should be different than they are. I wonder if we here in the Western world, in particular in, you know, the United States of America, if if we really have, uh, you know, a ramped up uh, version of, of that idea that you can live without any problems and you want to satisfy all those uh, impulses to be free and happy all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or we'll talk about luxury problems, but you know we take those very seriously. There, there's a 
a, a certain expectation that we can have things the way that we want them, you know, and that we can get people to act the way that we think that they should act. That is really um, dangerous, I think, to our sense of being in the world. It's um, when you really think about it, like why why would we have that view? Why would we think people would act the way we want and think that they should act? Like, well, where, where does that come from? Someone's telling Childhood. us. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, being, we're being told from early on that you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You know, the world is your oyster, uh, and you deserve so much of, you know, everything. <laughs> we're told yeah. that. We're told that early on. That deserving thing is a trap in both directions. How so? Because nobody deserves anything good or bad. No? It's not about what you deserve. Like, that's that's a trap, yeah. We just uh, we just should be, I mean, what, we, we should be respected, don't we deserve to be respected? Don't we deserve to be, yeah, respected. How about we just start with that? Um, people, you know, it's better if people behave a certain way, but they're not going to all the time (laughs) just because we know, you know, we know that's how people should behave. Doesn't, you know, a lot of times people can't even see themselves behaving. I've told you about that, right? Like the, the, um... The angry resting face that people have. They stand at the copiers and just glare at you. And then you you go out and you ask them if everything's okay. They're like, yeah, I'm just waiting for this to fax. <laughs> Why do you look like you want to kill me? <laughs> they have no idea. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah. Or they realize later. They come back and they'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. I was so rude to you before. I didn't mean it. That, but they do it in the yeah, moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that might be the same, come from the same place, you know, uh, as as deserving. We we don't have a, a sense of, uh, you know, personal um, reflection or, or we, we don't, we don't really take the time to, to, to uh, wonder how we are projecting ourselves or. Or how we mm-hmm. fit into the into the larger collective. It's just what I want, yeah. what I need. I, I don't even care what I look like, unless it gets me something that I want or need. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't realize that people right. might be well, and we don't affected. we don't want to think that bad things happen to good people. We we don't we we want to think that if you do good, that good things will happen to you, but. Things are going to happen, and some of them are going to be toward your benefit, and some of them are going to cost you something or, or, or be painful. But none of those things very often has anything to do with what you did or didn't do. <laughs> right. There are some things, like if I work hard, I can get an A on this assignment, but I think that's why I like school so much. <laughs> It's actually like a little bit controllable, right? It's structured. Um, it's clear. As right. If you work hard, you will you will get good grades. But the world doesn't work that way. No. 
you can work really hard and somebody else gets ahead. And it doesn't have anything to do with how hard you did or didn't work. And but but we but we we don't want to think that way because then why would we bother? What's the point? Right. Yeah. I mean unless you just you know, some people enjoy the process. They enjoy the work. They enjoy, you know, the practice. Those are the people that are happy because they don't, they're not doing it for the reward. So you should never do it for the reward. Yeah, that goes back. You might not get it even if you deserve it. Yeah, it goes back to the, the, the story, the, the parable about the Buddhist and the farmer. You know, mm-hmm. stop thinking that you shouldn't have any problems. Uh, looking for the payoff looking for when everything's going to be perfect and all right. Enjoy. Right, because it's never going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting way that we we are sort of introduced to the to the larger world when we're younger and then trying to if you if you even care to or um, you know you're fortunate enough to start wondering about why you're doing what you're doing it it takes a lifetime to, to try to undo all of that, you know, uh, that uh, sort of framing of what reality is. And, you know, you, you reminded me with another comment you made about being unhappy, uh, perhaps, or wondering what the mm-hmm. point is when, when people don't get their just rewards when they're doing everything right, quote-unquote, or being good, quote-unquote. There was a study, a couple studies that uh, I happened to read over the last year or so, where when they go to societies and they find you know people that, in general, in these communities are unhappy, oftentimes it has a connection to the the way um, people are promoted or people are given access to you know the the, the treasures, the, the 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 power structure, what have you. It's not mm-hmm. based on merit in those places. It's based on you know, if you fall in line or, or if you're married or you're born into the right family. Uh, oh, yeah. And then people in those kinds of communities seem to have a higher level of, of despair, of unhappiness, because they're probably wondering, what's the point here? And they sense the injustice, too. Uh, right. They need the Buddha. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it definitely doesn't help to see, you know people that seem to be given rewards for, you know, that they haven't earned. But, um, no. Yeah, I don't either. It's a weird thing. You know, what you say makes total sense to me in terms of just enjoy the journey and the process and, you know, your existence and don't get caught up in, in, in the rewards or the payoff. But it's hard. Right. It's hard to do that. It's hard, especially it when you see other people, as you at least, uh, you know, perceive it, who are getting places when they're not doing the work. They're not, you know, maybe as as uh, capable or experienced or what have you as others. That upset. Mm-hmm. I think that upsets you, an individual. Yeah, but what you have to remember is that they still have eighty three problems too. Yeah. So, they're also human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, we're distracted by our own problems. We forget the eighty-three problems that that guy has. So we should be empathetic and and uh, and have some compassion. Compassion is the secret. Yes, 
it is a thing that will make you happier. <laughs> when you have compassion for other people, you're much less angry. I just heard on progressive radio, there was a guy talking about uh, Trump being the angriest president <laughs> we ever had. And how <laughs> every day he's like going on about something or other, and it's just not sustainable. And I thought that was funny because... Uh, nobody really said it that way that I heard just how angry he is. Yeah. I wonder why he's so angry. I agree. He seems pretty angry. Right. Yeah. He's, he's, he gets worked up about lots of things every day. It's a, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of anger to keep putting out there every day. He must be exhausted. He only sleeps like four hours a night too, from what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. He's a mess. He's a hot mess. <laughs> He's a hot mess. A hot orange mess. <laughs> uh, Is he still orange? He hasn't toned it down. <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. I try not to look at him too much. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't really seen any pictures lately. No, I don't want to be hateful, but he conjures up some real, you know, angst in me, I'm sure, and many, many of our listeners too. Uh, but. Mm-hmm. You can't get caught up in that either. You know, it's it's a poison. It's a poison. Yeah, it's so unbelievable. Who? What, uh, what he's doing? Just just that the, that's three. We were talking about that the other day. I don't remember where we're going, but my sister and I and my nephew were in the car, and he said something about the the White House, and and we were like, "Really? Is he really the president?" <laughs> Like, we knew that, but there's just something about it that's just not real. It can't be. Yeah. We're, we're, in, a sta- just, we're in a state of like, you know, what, what, you know one of the, the, the several states when something happens that, that is really, uh, you know, difficult for one to handle. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're in uh, what, what stage of, of denial, I think, still? One year in. Yeah. yeah. It's just not, it's just not, it's just not believable. Even though it's actually, I've seen so much evidence that this was what happened. <laughs> and everybody keeps talking about it like that's the reality. But it's just not, it just can't be. <laughs> it's too preposterous. It is preposterous. You got me snorting on this end. It is. It can't be. It just can't. <laughs> it just but it can't. Is. It's, it's like a really long joke or something or yeah, it is, it is. It is, but it's not too funny in a lot of ways. But you got to laugh. I remember my grandmother used to say, my maternal grandmother used to say all the time, you know, when she was laughing, she'd be laughing a lot. Some would say, "Oh, you're laughing so much," and she'd say, "Yes, if I wasn't laughing, I'd be crying." Mm-hmm. I always thought that when I was a little kid, I always thought that was an interesting, you know, juxtaposition of of uh, states, and I, I, you know, it's still with me all these years later. It seemed poignant to me that statement. It still does. It does. Yeah, but you know, we're we're talking about trying to not get lost in in the negativity or getting too wrapped up in expectations. Uh, Mm. But you know, you you also have to, I think, watch that you don't become then apathetic. You know, and not because that that is sometimes what happens. One of our other regular contributors on the program, uh, Almighty Todd, he talks about Zen sickness. He hears about Zen sickness where people. 
You know, it's kind of a phenomena where people constantly go to that Zen place whenever problems arise, and they use mm. it as a way to avoid the, the challenges, the real challenges and issues that they face in life. Oh, yeah. No, Zen is actually welcoming the problems. Yeah, they're doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're you're going to feel it and be aware of it and go, oh, so this is what suffering feels like. And exist with it, you know, and I mean, there's only so much power we actually have, right? So, you know, wh- where is that? Where can I behave rightly, you know, all those rights, right speech, right livelihood, right, what are all the things that I can do that are right? And that's the best that I can do. Simply do the best that you can with what you have in this moment over and over and over again. We can't do anything more than that. No. And I guess you have to keep feeding your sense and understanding and connection to what right is. Mm-hmm. You know, what good is. Right. And if you have an opportunity to you know, make some sort of a difference, then, you know, perhaps that's an obligation. Or, or, or you could see it that way. But you should, I mean, also want to. And, I mean, you know, you can't, you have to take care of yourself. You can't run yourself into the ground trying to save the world. <laughs> no. When, uh, it just doesn't work. I, I think that we need to remember the little ways we can affect people and make a difference, even if it's being kind to, you know, one customer or helping somebody who didn't expect you to be there for them. And, uh, you know, telling stories that help people. Be stronger. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, you know, that's a good segue. I, we have, oh, maybe seven minutes or so. Uh, you, I know you're writing, or just finished writing uh, a short play, 10-minute play, about a girl who feels stuck with no opportunities. So yes. She, why don't you tell us a bit about that in the last seven minutes? Yes. I I got this really terrible app called BrainSparker that's one of these things that's supposed to give you, like, I don't know if it's prompts or just ideas. And it's it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, I'm like, oh, I've heard that before. That's not even challenging or it's just not something I want to write. It's just not good. But the one thing that popped up was a quote attributed to Milton Berle that says, if opportunity doesn't come knocking, build a door. And I have a very literal brain that thought, what if somebody actually built a door? And so I started with that. And then there's that group that builds the um, tiny little fairy doors into trees in the park. What have park? you seen these? Oh, they are? I, I saw them at McDade. There's like two of them. 
but they find the little like notches, like hollows and trees and they build tiny little doors and put them on hinges <laughs> on the trees. So they look like little fairy doors. That's cool. And it is really cool. It's magical. There's one that they have at McDade. And then like a couple weeks later, somebody found little mushrooms. Like, I don't know if it's the kind you get at like people who build models or something, but they put two tiny little mushrooms outside the door. So it's became like a community collaboration now where people are adding things to something that somebody else started. Um, but I, I, of course I love these. And so I decided that this girl, when she was small, was obsessed with fairies and, um, you know, it was sort of her own secret because she knew nobody would believe her. And it wasn't that she could see them because they weren't stupid enough to let themselves be visible, but she could feel them and she would go in the woods and, you know, hang out with these fairies and it was her thing. And it was just something that she sort of did to feel better, I guess, you know, in the world that is nice. There's these positive little spirits in the woods. So, so she decides she's, she sees this fairy door and she remembers how she was obsessed with fairies when she was young. And she's like, I'm good. That's it. I'm going to build a door for me. She doesn't quite know what it means. She doesn't, she just feels in her gut that it's, it's something to do. She's just going to do it. She's just going to build the door, right? Finds plans on the internet, builds a door. You know, of course her brother is like, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. Her dad's kind of a drunk. Her, her mother had run away years and years ago. She's a missionary trying to save souls in Africa or something. And so she's building the door. She like takes it apart and starts rebuilding it again. And the neighbors are like annoyed. So they call the city. Like, does she even have a permit? Where's she building Where's the door? Building? In the backyard. Just in the middle of the backyard? Yes. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, right? But she doesn't care. She's doing it anyway. And so the, the neighbors like call the city. And then like, so there's like a news reporter that comes out and like is doing, interviewing the neighbor about it. And then, there's a scene where she's kind of like in the middle of the night, her dad gets up and they have this weird middle of the night conversation. And then in the final scene, she's um, leaving to go out West to um, build tiny houses for homeless people. Because this guy that um, Terrence, I named him who runs this organization that builds tiny houses for homeless people, saw her on the news and was like, that's the kind of person that, we want to have and like contacted her and invited her to join them. So she's leaving. And of course there's a scene where the brother's all upset because she's leaving just like the mom left. And, and that's kind of the end, <laughs> but it, it's just this idea. I think that, you know, she didn't know that when she built the door, that that was what was going to happen. But there's kind of like a faith and a belief that it's just better to do something than nothing. Even if you don't know what it's going to lead to. Yeah. yeah, I like it very I much. Like it very much. So that's kind of what came out. And it, the thing I love most about this program I'm in is we just don't really have that. We don't have that much time. <laughs> it's like, okay, you have to write a 10 minute play, go. And you can't sit there and go and mess with it and try to figure out, you know, is this good enough? What you, you just have to write. You just have to do it. 
and then you have to turn it in and it's you know then you can revise it's only a first draft but um they just kind of there's no procrastination you just have to you just have to create yeah this is a project for uh, your mfa is that what it is yeah yeah i love it and what's the name of this piece you have a name for it lara's door for now <laughs> yeah yeah i'd love to see it staged yeah i think it could be really i mean it's just that sense of magic and and she talks about that and you know and her, her brother basically says she's crazy and and he's like where where do you what do you think this do like is gonna go is it, you think it's gonna take you somewhere and you know and she's just like does it matter? Like, why can't I just do this? Why do you have such a problem with me doing this? So it's kind of like that idea that people just want to shut you down anytime you try to do anything. Anything outside um, of the norm, you know? Right. Anything that doesn't make sense to them. You know, you can't build a, a door in the backyard. Why not? What's the big deal? People just become disturbed by things. And, and so, like, that's kind of what she says. Um, there's a monologue in the end that you kind of realize, oh, she's talking to the reporter, you know, and she says, I just want people to know, like, don't let them stop you from doing what you want to do kind of a thing. I don't know. You try to make it so, so there's like some darker, edgier stuff in there too. And I didn't necessarily talk about that here, but it, it kind of evens out the like, where this could be really sappy. <laughs> there is some, there is some darkness in there too, you know? The father is like wakes up in the middle of the night and he's talking about he had a dream that he was dying and then he realized he really is. And <laughs> not in that second, but, you know, when you feel a little less alive than you did the day before. That's dark. So there's some. Yeah, but it's kind of true. What that that it's not, yeah. yeah. He says it's not death that people are afraid of. It's dying a little bit more every day. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm happy Lara got the hell out. Yeah, well, exactly. You're kind of like good. I'm glad she's like this. Well, and I think a lot of us have that thing that we do have to get out of, whether it's a relationship or a situation or something that is maybe holding us back in some way and we feel stuck. We feel obligated to stay and we don't know how to leave. We don't know how to get out. And she built a door and she didn't know how that was going to help her, but it did in this way that she completely couldn't have seen coming when she did it. So it kind of makes sense. It's weird. Like, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I just sat down and I was just writing. And I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> but then when I was done, I was like, wow, this kind of works. I love it. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Kitty Bill. And I think that's a good place to leave it. I really do. Uh, Thanks. Great. Yeah. Great talking with you as usual. And uh, first time you've uh, been featured on the program as we're uh, being aired on Radio Free Brooklyn. So, mm, hello, Brooklyn. Yeah. And uh, we'll be talking to you again after the holidays. Okay. I look forward to some of your cookies. Oh, yes. I will make sure you get some this year. Not going to rely on the kids. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Have a good evening. Have a good week. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. From a 1974 essay by Seymour Krim, for my brothers and sisters in the failure business. We are all victims of the imagination in this country. The American dream may sometimes seem like a dirty joke these days, but it was internalized long ago by our fevered little minds, and it remains to haunt us as we fumble with the unglamorous pennies of life during the illusionless middle years. At 51, believe it or not, or believe it and pity me if you are young and swift, I still don't know truly what I want to be. I've published several serious books. I rate an inch in who's who in America. I teach at a so-called respected university. But in that profuse upstairs delicatessen of mine, I'm as open to every wild possibility as I was at 13. Although even I know that the chances of acting them out 
diminish with each heartbeat. One life was never quite enough for what I had in mind. At 50, my father was as built in as a concrete foundation, and at 55, he was crushed out of existence by the superstructure of his life. I have no superstructure except possibly in my head. I literally live alone with my fierce dreams, and my possessions are few. My father knew where he stood, or thought he did, having originally come from an Iron Cross Europe. But I only know that I stand on today with a silent prayer that tomorrow will bring to me my revelation and miracleize me. That's because I come from America, which has to be the classic, ultimate, when then they broke the mold incubator of not knowing who you are until you find out. I have never really found out, and I expect what remains of my life to, to be one long search party for the final me. I don't kid myself that I'm alone in this, hardly, and I don't really think that the great day will ever come when I hold a finished me in my fist and say, here you are, congratulations. I'm talking primarily about the expression of that me in the world, the shape it takes, the profile it zings out, the work it does. You may sometimes think everyone lives in the crotch of the, pres the pleasure principle these days, except you. But you have company, friend. I live under the same pressures you do. It is still your work or role that finally gives you a definition in our society, and the thousands upon thousands of people who I believe are like, like me are those who have never found the professional skin to fit the riot in their souls. Many never will. I think what I have to say here will speak for some of their secret life, and for that other sad America you don't hear too much about. This isn't presumption so much as a voice of scars and stars talking. I've lived it, and will probably go on living it, until they take away my hot dog. I will never be satisfied with sketching my own portrait, and that of those that, like me, when it was action we finally craved, after all those dress rehearsals in the mind, and not self-analysis. America worked on us too hard when you get right down to it. We imaginatively lived out all the mythic possibilities, all the personal turn-on of practically superhuman accomplishment, stimulated by the fables of the media. We were the perfect big-eyed consumers of this country's four-color ad to the universe, wanting to be one tempting thing, and then another, and ending up, most of us, with little but the sadly smiling hope that time would somehow solve our situation. When I've been brave, I've told my friends who share my plight that this is no longer a true possibility to hang on to. Time will most likely repeat itself. We will most likely repeat ourselves. Most of my friends agree with that hard twinkle in the eye that unites all of us who have earned it. But you cannot separate us from the deepest promise of the country as it was lived within by very sensitive poets without a tongue, so to speak, and perhaps the ultimate failure of the country. This last is not an easy thing to say, even in a time in which America baiting is the rage. Like most of us in the failure business, I am, we are, 
patriots so outrageously old-fashioned that we incorporated the spirit of the country in our very heads, took literally its every invitation to the greatest kind of self-fulfillment ever known. There's something beautiful about being an American sucker, even if you pay for it with tears and worse. We were millionaires of the spirit for at least 20 adult years before we felt the lowering of the boom, and in the last analysis, it is the spirit, the attitude within, a quality of soul that this country has to offer to history much more than its tangible steel and the bright blood too often accompanying it.
Wonder. Pumpkin spice biscotti and dark black coffee together infuse my olfactory and tongue. The fireplace flames warm as I long for her to come home and wonder what the holiday means really anyway. And there you have it, episode 247 of Troubadours and Tours. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode happen. First and foremost, our regular contributor, Kitty Bell Burbank. So nice to talk with you, Kitty Bell. I also would like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, for sharing a piece 
by writer Seymour Krim. Thank you, Seymour Krim, as well. And, of course, we must thank these wonderful artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Kinks, The Specials, Margot Price, the late, great John Coates. May you find peace, and thank you, sir. Paul Thorne, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, enjoy this one. Take care. <laughs>